Have you ever listened to the pod and thought it would be awesome if Jen stopped being nerdy about movies for 60 seconds and talked about your business instead? Well, my friends, you're in luck. Watch with Jen is looking for sponsors. Do you own or run a theater, bookstore, film fest, website, school, physical media firm, pod, streaming channel, or small business that might like to advertise on Watch With Jen? Whether you're interested in sponsoring one episode or several, please reach out. You can get a hold of me at contact at filmintuition.com. Thanks so much. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. A writer and filmmaker based in Los Angeles, today's guest, Duncan Birmingham, was an executive producer and screenwriter for IFC's Marin, and also served as a co-executive producer and writer on the Stars series Blunt Talk as well. Additionally, Duncan's short films have premiered at such festivals as Sundance and AFI and his screenplay Swingles, which was bought by Paramount, was also on the blacklist. Recently, his lively, irreverent short story collection, The Cult in My Garage, was published by Maudlin House in 2021, and he wrapped and released his excellent first feature-length film as a writer-director called Who Invited Them? Well, Duncan, I want to thank you so much for doing this. It's always a pleasure. In the past, we talked about Hal Ashby and Noah Bumbach and a little Dennis Hopper. And so it was fun to plan a whole episode devoted to an actor this time, an actor of your choosing. But before we get into that, I'd love to know, so how are you doing and how's this new year been treating you? Um, the new year, the new year has been good. The new year has been good. Uh, everything's fine. We just had, as you know, big, big rainstorms out here. Um, just trying to get the get the next movie off the ground and uh, excited that um, Tarantino opened the Vista Theater, which isn't too far from me, opened that back up about five months ago. I was just saying I'm going to Straw Dogs and Death Wish tomorrow. That's my Super Bowl alternative program. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for thanks for having me. Always love to come. Always love to have an excuse to watch some movies. Um, always have a good time. Great. Yes. And I love watching movies on Super Bowl Sunday because I'm not a football person myself. And I remember growing up, like my mom renting movies for us to watch. And I have great memories of seeing like the Falcon and the Snowman for the first time on Super Bowl Sunday. So it seems to be in my eyes, a really good day for movie watching. So I hope you have a good time tomorrow for that. And yeah, I'm in the middle of kind of I don't know if you can call it a Super Bowl or more like a film festival, a few days of recording sessions. So we're kicking things off with John Cusack, who I know is one of your faves. You started watching, I think, some of his stuff more towards the end of last year and thought it might be fun to revisit his filmography. I'm a huge fan. I think it's a Gen X thing. We grew up 
with John Cusack and watching John Cusack. And he also just seemed, I think, being from the middle of the country where I'm from the Midwest as well, he just seemed someone like someone you would know. Someone I know I've dated people who are like the characters in these <laughs> movies. And we will get into that, I'm sure. But what is it about, character? yeah, about John Cusack and his career and this era uh, that appealed to you? Um, yeah, you know what? I, I there were a, a, a bunch of different things. Certainly, the 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 Gen Xness of John Cusack yes. um, looms large, uh, and we'll talk about that a, a, a little more as we get into the movies. Um, I, I, I have a, a slight personal connection in that I was a extra in one crazy summer. Oh, wow. Uh, his two savage, uh, Steve movies, I think better off dead was first. And then a few years later came one crazy summer that was filmed in Cape Cod. And I begged my mom to take me, um, to, to, to be an extra. We, we basically dressed like tourists and sat on a jetty. And we're in the big uh, sailboat scene. If you've seen One Crazy Summer, I have, um, but it's been a while. It's it's been a while for me too. I, I so I I got to meet. I, I think I approached him. This was a time in my life where I liked autographs. I approached him uh, at lunch and asked for his autograph. I think I got Bobcat Goldthwait's autograph too. Okay. Uh, both have been lost to to time and history. I met. I worked with Bobcat on. Uh, Mark Marin's show and said to him, I was like, you probably don't remember, but we worked together before. It was fun <laughs> than than it was to him. But anyway, so I I I have a, a an early connection with with Cusack uh, in that I met him and as a kid. I didn't meet many movie stars, and at that point, I knew him because I had seen the Sure Thing. That was probably oh, yeah. one of the racier movies. I think I. I think my parents took me to that. Um, and I was uh, a fan and liked his little, I even, I thought he was funny in, in 16 candles and in class. And he just seemed like a, like a cool guy. So I tracked his career. I saw say anything in the theater and I'm sure we will we'll both have plenty to say about where John Cusack and, and Lloyd Dobler, the character kind of converge and, uh, <laughs> How difficult it is to uh, uh, separate the, the the two of them, um, mm -hmm. the, the character from the uh, from the actor and the persona. Um, so yeah, we get into parsing that as we get into say anything. But yeah, have have always liked him. And I think the one reason I picked him when we were talking about what what to chat about on the show was I I miss him. You know he yes is doing um, you know some some a lot of straight. To video or, or streaming stuff mm -hmm. uh, with with people like you know Nicolas Cage and uh, until recently Bruce Willis I think he did one or two with him but just stuff that's just like not on my radar and um, yeah Utopia the TV show and and he was good in that from what I what I watched but um, that I think that just lasted a season so I so I miss him so it was a, it was a little excuse to uh, uh, revisit one of my favorite Gen X stars. Yes, in this peak era and listening to you talk about some of these movies, I think the first one I would have seen in the theater would have been Journey of Natty Gann. And I do remember uh, thinking that the lead in that movie was cute, even as a kid. So probably would have been that. And then, you know, I'm not sure. Weirdly, I think I saw The Grifters before I saw Say Anything for whatever reason. Um, I remember... 
like an older boy in my high school uh, borrowing me the grifters. And um, so I think that was, it was like all of a sudden, whoa, John Cusack is playing an adult in this and he's doing all of these um, things that you wouldn't expect, you know, the guy from the John Hughes era to do. So that was exciting. And, you know, so many of these movies we saw in the theater that I have vivid memories of going to Gross Point Blank, which became a family favorite, and High Fidelity. Being John Malkovich, I didn't see in the theater because it was only at an art house that was super far from my house. So I had to wait for a video for that one or DVD by that time. But yeah, I'm looking forward to diving in. I think, you know, I also loved his sister, Joan. She was, I mean, she's his older sister. And he admits freely, like she always, when they share a scene, she's the one you're watching because she completely drives over me like a a cement truck or a steamroller. And he's happy about that because she's amazing. And yeah, I also always enjoyed the fact that he did seem to find his uh, niche and also find these actors and directors and people behind the scenes that he clicked with. And, you know, just like people like working with their friends or doing things with people that they have a good rapport with, uh, Cusack kind of did that. He took some jobs for hire like everyone does for money, but he did really try to work with some of these people that he loves. And that's great. Yeah. Yeah. I have a a little list of Cusackian trope. And I, I read that John Mahoney... Uh, they had worked together in Eight Men Out, and I think I think John Mahoney kind of uh, 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 gave him a heads up about the Say Anything script because he knew Cameron Crowe. Uh, yeah. John says that you know Say Anything is where Cusack uh, you know developed his Cusackiness, and Cusack for sure he doesn't know what that means. So I I really thought about what that meant, and and it feels like yeah, it's it's. Uh, the the most Cusackian movies seem to have you know the the, the actors and the friends that are in his orbit. Jeremy, yes. Pippen, is it Lily yeah, T- Pippin. <laughs> when he says ten years, man, I mean, you think like this would have been a guy you would have hung out with? Yes, right, right. Uh, yeah. his sister. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there's the whole the soundtrack. Whether he's wearing a, a Clash t-shirt i know i was a little like remiss that i didn't have a clash t-shirt i was like but i have to wear black because that's a very cusacky kind of thing to do but but i wish i had the you know the clash kind of goes through all of his films yeah yeah i I know i was just looking for the cusack autograph again but i couldn't find it (laughs) look at us looking for props yeah (laughs) even though it's an audio podcast it was just for us mainly yeah Right. Well, I, when I had my Dennis Hopper uh, picture, I was very yes, proud. Yes, take a screenshot. Yeah. Uh, I think there's certain elements of wardrobe where you're you're feeling yeah. like he's, he's kind of dressing like himself. The T-shirts, the duster, the skinny ties. And then there is uh, the rain. And yep. I feel like he is. Oh, he is, my God. He loves a good rain. You know, he is Irish Catholic. And so there is something about, yes, the rain and washing away. And yeah, yeah. He likes some baptism, some romantic, um, seems to be a little bit of a tortured poet in there. Yes. The, the romantic martyr uh, yes. in here really gets brought out in the rain. So so there's, those were a few. And as we talk about the different movies, I'll try and, and, and clock how, how Cusacky they are, uh, you know, on a scale without hopefully being too annoying. Um, but, but, but yeah, and I, I'd say the other... 
other movie that kind of loomed large for me that I had forgotten about. He's only in it a little bit, but is is that uh, Stand by Me? Maybe he has a scene or two. Yes, small the, the, role, the but yeah. River Phoenix, who who passes away, and there was just something about that. I remember seeing that in the theater, and I was like, "Oh, okay, so this guy's like kind of like a name now. He gets to do he yeah. gets through this the, the 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 cameo, and he also that that is kind of how I picture him. He's the Gen X older brother, uh-huh. um, piece, but the Gen X older brother who tells you what's cool, tells yep. you what's right, tells you what's wrong. I feel like that's where he he looms uh, in my mind. Yeah, he's the guy that tells you how to make the mixtape for the girl and, you know, maybe don't call her eight times because I called Diane Court too much or that kind of thing. Like he is, yeah, you know, and always make a little bit of a public uh, declaration. Those always work. And yeah, it's a little bit of uh, the Cusack lore. So I'm excited to dive in. I think I was the one that was pushing more for say anything because I do feel like that is kind of, you were saying this is the quintessential Cusack that we're narrowing in on here. And I think it really does begin with say anything. This was kind of at the tail end. This was 89, which is such a great year for writer directors. You have sex lies and videotape do the right thing you know some of these great films coming out in 89 and then you had Cameron Crowe who people knew from his Rolling Stone work and also Fast Times at Ridgemont High but making his directorial debut but it's also kind of like if you maybe watch the John Hughes movies and thought they were a little smart alecky or they didn't really fit in with your vibe or your aesthetic Suddenly, there was a new type of, you can call this a teen movie, it's kind of a quintessential teen movie, but it's also just one of the great romantic comedies, I think. Uh, And it's more of a drama, too, because there is so much going on in this movie. It's as much about the parent as it is about the kids. Um, You know, it's multi-generational. You have Cameron Crowe, who loves Billy Wilder, and uh, you see a lot of that bittersweet, that wry, um, the pathos going through this movie. I adore it. So talk to me about, say anything, your relationship with this movie and why you love it, why you think it's lasted this long. Um, well, I, I agree with everything you, you said. Uh, yeah, I, I saw it. I, I think I saw it with my brother, my older brother. I, I enjoyed it at the time. It did have a different rhythm i don't think either of us really knew what to mm-hmm. expect and then i got a little more into it uh watching it over and over on video and uh just watching it for this podcast i like kind of been happier i just yeah. was in heaven it's just such a smart interesting movie between john mahoney and um ioni sky and john cusack yes. you you really see it's almost like this little love triangle you, mm-hmm. you really get everyone's point of view um, John Cusack's character, as 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 charming as Lloyd Dobler, is you can understand that that John Mahoney's character he doesn't want his daughter d- dating this guy who seems to yeah. have like, zero life plan. Um, and yeah. want, even when John Mahoney gets a, a, accused of this crime and and is guilty and it's heartbreaking, you understand his his point of view too. It's 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 really great. The the side characters. Um, are awesome. I thought about her talk about uh, Noah Baumbach because Eric Stoltz, mm-hmm. you're playing kind of like oh, the yes. version, <laughs> the, the 
the guy who can't leave high school behind version of the guy who can't leave college behind version of kicking and screaming. Yeah. Yeah. He's kind of the John Milner, but of say anything. Yeah. 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 He has this legendary party. And yes. Yeah. The party scene was, was so great. Yeah. I just found it really, really funny and really moving. And uh, yeah, Cusack really comes out in this movie as a, as a new type of teen star in that he's full of contradictions you know he's he's the kickboxer but he's not really a a jock he's kind of cool but he's not hanging out with the cool kids mm-hmm. on the movie is his two best friends uh are, are women um it, it's you know he's uh he's you don't know what to think about him in the beginning i love the moment where he calls up uh ioni sky and asks her out on a date and they've had one interaction previously off mm-hmm. before the movie started so so she doesn't know who he is when he calls and then she picks up the yearbook and then has to look up who he is and she kind of she's not too disappointed but no. she's just like a little disappointed and a little puzzled and that's almost how you feel about the character at first yeah, you're not sure what to make of him. Uh, he's 19. That's another thing because he had been, uh, or he is the son of military. He and his sister and had lived over in Europe. So he's a little worldlier. He's definitely different than the guys that she's used to. This is a film, like I said, I had seen a bunch of Cusack stuff. I think I did see this finally in high school or maybe early in college. And it was the first one I watched where I actually related and completely identified with a character in one of these movies was Mm -hmm. the Ioni Sky character because I started college at 16 and I didn't really fit in with the people in high school and I didn't really fit in with the adult world. And so you're kind of stuck in the middle where um, some people think she's goody-goody, but she also is just a teenager. And um, so I love that. And I was probably closer than your average bear with uh, parents. And so, um, you know, friends would come over and talk to my parents like it was one of those things. So this is a film that kind of hits me on that level. I love, too, you uh, get to see where Cameron Crowe is going to take this kind of protagonist uh for the future. He's sort of this guy who writes these really beautiful things about people who are, you know, they're looking for a dare to be great situation to quote Lloyd, or uh, they will put their job on the line, like in Jerry Maguire, or their hearts on the line, or try Mm. to be uncool and almost famous, like these precocious people who have big ideas. They're they're always like optimistic, but in a rebellious kind of way, like they see the bad out there and they think, but why not? Why can't it be better? And why can't we take a chance? They go for it. And I think there's a a really cool marriage of the, you know, the Cameron Crowe deciding this is his thing and uh, Cusack, like you said, discovering his Cusackiness, which is kind of this thing. Although, uh, Cusack kind of t- takes it in a little bit more of a cynical bent in the the 90s, but there's still sort of this idea of, you know what, we can try things, we can do, um, we can, we see the way life's going and we can veer right if we need to. And I love that about it. Oh, me too. Me too. Yeah. It's a really unique hybrid of a movie and then yeah. teen and adult world. And it's, you know, it's teen centered, but it has this this 
this pedigree with Polly Platt and Laszlo Kovacs yes. and, and uh, James Brooks involvement. Um, and it has this, you know, heavy adult plot with the John Mahoney character. Yeah. I don't know if you call it embezzling or, or tax evasion. Um, uh, and and you would just never guess from the from the opening of the movie that it would uh, the second to last scene would be in a, uh, you know, out, outdoor penitentiary. I um, know I'm incarcerated, Lloyd, which it's, it's there's so, so many good line reads in this movie. Like, uh, I love it. Um, so, and I, I, I think about, uh, there's a, a Chuck Klosterman essay where he talks about Lloyd Dobler and the Lloyd Dobler effect, which I think to paraphrase it is, it has something to do with in, in Chuck Klosterman's love life, everyone's comparing, uh, the women in his life are comparing him to Lloyd Dobler, uh, and it's this impossible ideal and, uh, no woman can, can differentiate between Lloyd Dobler and, and John Cusack because it's such a, such a, performance that that feels like it's him so i don't know about romantically but i would extend the lloyd dobler effect to me as a viewer feeling like when i watch john cusack i do feel like the baseline personality i'm like is lloyd dobler and everything he's doing if he's if he's stretching and he looks different and he's talking a little different i'm like okay he's he's, he's really stretching from the lloyd dobler uh mm -hmm. persona, as if that was him um but i think they are so they are pretty interlinked. So this, this on the, if we had the Cusacky scale, the, the say anything is, is at the, the very top. You've, you've got everything from the, 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 the soundtrack, uh, the music and the, the music that he talks about in the movie that seems to be the music that is his own personal preferences. Yes. At Lily Taylor, you know, one of his, the, the people that's almost like in the Cusack company, you have his yes. speech anti-authority uh, uh, anti yeah. um uh the wardrobe oh god what else uh i guess not the the kickboxing doesn't enter the rain yeah is certainly part of his yes this is this is where probably his first uh being yeah. romantic rain movie comes from um yeah no the, it's it's all there the, the yeah the but the kickboxing for sure i mean that is if you, anyone knows anything about john cusack in real life um I think he was something like a sixth or seventh level black belts like he's stuck with uh, the same guy who trained him for this he stuck with it and loves kickboxing and you do see him using some of these skills in cross point blank yes oh, in the right. hallway, in the hallway. Yes. Yes. yes yes which i love okay so certainly that 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 i'll add that to the the list that only i'm keeping yeah. track um, yeah yeah i had never heard about kickboxing before I don't quite remember, but I'm sure if there was an internet at the time, which there wasn't, I would have been right home Googling kickboxing and seeing if yes. there was in my neighborhood because it looks so cool. I was like, could I do that? I don't know. He's not, <laughs> seems cool. He's not, doesn't seem like a jock. I don't know. You don't have, it, it looked like a lot of legwork. Um, mm -hmm. Very Kicking cool. punching bags. I love Mahoney has to explain it, which was funny. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. I know. It, it's such a good movie. Um, and it, you know, Piven, it's all right there. And yeah, and I think because it was a hit, it was, I think it was the gross, um, or was something like 16 mil and box office was 20. So it was, you know, it was a little bit of a hit. It critically uh, acclaimed, you know, I, Roger Ebert has written so beautifully about this movie in his great movies essays. One of my favorite uh, ones he's written is about Say Anything. So if you guys are listening and you have that book or 
go online and read it because it's it's very beautiful it's you know um yeah it's it's definitely right there in the universe and i think because he had some success then he was able to take it in a different direction he was like okay i'm closing the door on those teen roles that i played in the 80s and he did it in a big way with the grifters which it's based on a Jim, Jim Thompson novel, of course. He was a huge fan of Jim Thompson in high school and also uh, his script for The Killing for Kubrick and was just ready and pursuing this. I guess in 1985, he actually wanted to try to make this into a movie himself. So then when he heard that Frears and uh, Martin Scorsese, who was producing, were working on something like this, he was he was you know pursuing it for sure. Oh, very cool. So on the on the trajectory of 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 him being a, a star who then kind of yeah. gets involved in his own movies, even though he's not a producer on this, it's almost like he almost almost yes. it was kind of a passion project. Yeah, nice. And yeah, it feels like I think by this point he'd done um, he had a, a a part in Fat Man and Little Boy with Paul Newman. He's he's done yes the period ensemble, but this is really his first uh, adult lead role Mm -hmm. and and it's very adult Um, yeah like he'd done eight men out i think by this point but but this is so dark yes yeah and it's the rare probably out of all the movies we talk about this would be the least cusacky of them all yeah but but not in not not entirely uh, just in terms of uh in the triangle he's in with angelica houston as the 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 mom he can't trust and annette benning as the girlfriend he can't trust his Roy character is a uh, short-term con guy who seems yeah. to seems to not have the huge ambitions they have. So, so even in this kind of noir setting where he's playing a character that's very different than anything he's done before, there is I, I found there's still to be a few seeds of the yes. of persona in that he's he's kind of got things figured out until these two women come into his life and he doesn't he doesn't want to uh, shake the shake the apple cart uh, too badly. Yeah, he's highly verbal, which is a Cusack thing. Um, and he also is someone who uses his charm like a weapon. He's a flirt. He's a storyteller. He can figure out how to play or he thinks he's, you know, putting things over on everyone. Uh, he's one of those, you know, he proves the idea of you can be a con artist to everyone, but you can still get conned yourself. Uh, Angelica Houston is amazing. And I guess when um, she actually was a little bit hesitant uh, to take this role. And when she met Frears, I think it was Frears who just thought she was too classy and thought, how are we going to put this woman? And, you know, she's a real lady. What are we going to do? And then let's give her a cheap blonde wig and, you know, tight kind of trashy clothing and sort of make her an inverse of the Annette Benning character a little bit. They are kind of similar types. There's the Oedipal thing going on. I mean, it's very uh, Jim Thompson and his weird relationships uh, with women that go throughout the books. And, you know, you have Martin Scorsese, too, as a narrator. Like, how many movies open with um, that as your narrator? It has one of my favorite introductory, you know, they turn around to the camera and it's uh, a split screen in three, which is great. 
um, like a triptych. It's it's a lot of, you know, I wouldn't call it a fun movie because it's super dark, but I think you go in expecting it to be one type of a con movie. And then, boy, does it get like progressively darker and darker. And I did read it really hit Angelica Houston hard. She talked about losing sleep over it, getting physically ill by the, you know, emotional punch of that last sequence in the movie we won't spoil and actually like running from the set. So it really took a lot out of her and she is tremendous. And I think being with these two great actresses and that at the beginning of her career, but still these great women um, kind of enabled uh, Cusack to rise to a different level. And he's really, really strong here. But you do see a little bit of Lloyd, like if Lloyd, uh, you know, if Diane dumps him in London and he meets the wrong people or winds up in a sketchy part of town, you know, you never know. Things went bad for Lloyd. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Yes. <laughs> uh, yes for me, this is really one of the great like neo noirs and, and it, yeah. it's still unique in that as dark as the material is and it gets dark, you know, it's a it, it's it's a sun. It's, the way it's shot, it's a sunny Sun yeah. It has an energy and it really moves. It's really, uh, for lack of a better word, very zippy. Um, mm -hmm. so you you kind of don't, it, it really sneaks up on you. Um, yeah. How dark and how sinister it gets. And yeah, Cusack is great. I think it's uh, one of the, his rare roles where he's not the smartest guy in mm -hmm. the room. And, and almost his persona as that guy uh, plays into this role. You're, you're kind of surprised uh, what what gets crept up on him, um, uh, or the, that the other characters are able to kind of get the uh, the the uh, the leap on him a little bit. I would say uh, almost reminds me in a way of the dynamic of, of being John Malkovich, where uh, another time where uh, two very smart uh, women kind of uh, 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 overplay him um, and, uh, and 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 kind of get. Uh, uh, can get one over on him. So yeah, no, I love it. I love him in this too. I read that that Frears at one point, Robert Downey Jr. was in the, the running, but he he thought Cusack was better suited to it. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it might be my favorite Angelica Houston role. Um, and I read that the scene with Pat Hingle with the, is it the grapefruits? With the oranges. Oh my God. Yeah. That's like a, a masterclass of what isn't shown, but it's still like horrible. Yes. But they actually shot the real thing, yeah. And uh, I think I saw it in the theater, and this was my this was my Annette Bening uh, introduction. Um, <laughs> really popped on screen, so yeah, huge huge fan of the Grifters. Yeah, and then Annette right after this with Bugsy, and this kind of launched because this was, I mean, to tie it back with Cusack, Annette Bening in '89. I still remember Great Outdoors. She is so good uh, as the wife of Dan Aykroyd, who we're going to see in Gross Point Blank. So it was kind of interesting. And also um, watching this movie and thinking about another one that kind of came out in this uh, time period based on another classic uh, crime novel, uh, Miami Blues by George Armitage, who was the director of uh, Gross Point Blank, because Cusack was such a big fan of Miami Blues. So, yeah. And listening to you talk about these love triangles uh, with Cusack at the center, I'm realizing that it is kind of a recurring theme. It's either people or it's um, like a girlfriend and a job. 
that he seems mm -hmm. to be having to choose. So he is somebody who likes a triangle or finds himself in a triangle situation quite a bit in these movies. Yeah. Yeah. Pulled, pulled in uh, various directions. Yes. Absolutely. So if this yeah. was, yeah, coming, if he if he wanted to put his uh, cute teen roles behind him, uh, he did it, uh, and more so, with the grifters. Yes. And then the next one was Gross Point Blank, which is a movie that he said was, you know, the first one he considers that he made. Um, he was one of the screenwriters of this thing. He produced it. It was, so Gross Point Blank was, though, he said, uh, the film that he helped propel and make himself it does very much feel like almost a high school yearbook it is a movie about a high school reunion but he's pulling from this well of people that he's met over the years or admired over the years or in his little stratosphere of people who know people like wanting to get Alan Arkin and wanting to get Dan Aykroyd. He talked about writing the script and the screenwriters deciding that they wanted it to be pregnant, in his words, or about at 75%. He said, but not giving birth yet because you bring in such geniuses who have such a facility with improv, like he said, his sister or Dan Aykroyd or Alan Arkin, and they're going to take it in a million directions and we're going to run with it. George Armitage, who did Miami Blues, also said when they were making this movie, he was shooting three films simultaneously is how he described it. He's like the one that was written, slightly understated version of the one that was written, and then a batshit crazy version that was really heightened and really, and he said, that is the one we wound up pulling from the most when they cut it all together. So well, I love that. Yeah. Yeah, it feels like really at this point in his career, uh, he has the reputation, or, or at least from my point of view as an audience member, of an actor who doesn't just pick great material, but now he's also developing yes. uh, great material. And and we talked about even 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 before this, he he seems like such an integral part of say anything and such an and it, yeah, so, like a collaborator. Mm -hmm. He seems like he is is more than an an actor. And when he talks about his movies, I, I've noticed in podcasts and stuff, he he does seem to always talk about the genesis of them in a way that seems to go beyond the purview of actor, even if he's not a, a producer. So yeah, I'm, like ideas I could bring to it. Yes. Yeah, Which but, is kind of the dream, I think, for some actors. It's, you know, a job for hire. But then these projects they believe in, they really do want to contribute. Yeah, because that makes uh, the work better. Mm hmm. He, and that's as as an audience member, I am expecting that. And like I remember going to see Con Air and being surprised he was in that. Yes. And I read later that uh, he was kind of in his one for one for them, one for yeah. Um, and I think he had a I think Joe Roth pulled him into that movie as a producer. Um, I mean, I love I love Con Air, but he he added, according to him, the the quote about uh, Dostoevsky in a society. Mm -hmm by how it treats its prisoners and the idea that his, his character wears those sandals um that, those were those were his his touches uh so even when it's one for them he tries to you know bring uh, bring a lot of quirk and, and idiosyncrasy and maybe even a, just a, a a pinch of his political agenda to the forefront yeah and roth being behind disney in this era that's how he uh knew to go to roth who he said was so creative and collaborative and uh, a giving individual for gross point blank he's like that's the one i wanted to approach yes 
at some point, Roger Ebert, I think it was a few years after this, says, you know, Cusack is almost never in a bad movie. <laughs> maybe be said anymore, but uh, yeah, he's he's kind of firing on all pistons. So yeah, I, obviously I love Gross Point Blank, and it's uh, on the on the Cusackian scale. It's pretty it's pretty Cusacky because he's going back. It to, is, but as an adult, and the soundtrack is filled with all types of nuggets that he would have. It's it's the soundtrack. Oh he my went- gosh! I mean, it's Joe Strummer who is the composer here. And so it's very right off of his T-shirt from Say Anything. And um, yeah, so you've got the clash there. There's a lot of clash in the movie, Um, but also just all these great 80s bands. He's someone who loves the punk um, era and New Wave and all of that is getting uh, played throughout. He also is just working in, um, I mean, you can imagine, you wonder how much was written and then how much was the idea, uh, the brainchild of the music supervisor, because the way that they use music as a counterpoint to the action in this movie is fabulous. Like, you know, hiding a body and rolling it in a a banner in a high school hallway to 99 uh, loof balloons is, is brilliant. Yeah. Uh, I love that. I never thought of that. Um, yeah, I mean, once again, he's playing a main character who's very, very uh, loquacious and chatty. Yes. Anti-authority uh, streak, but a, a, a different anti-authority streak. And just to think of the Lloyd Dobler of it all, uh, is is there a version where Diane uh, dumped Lloyd Dobler uh, and and he, you know, he's he's the guy who doesn't want to sell anything, buy anything or process anything? Yeah. But uh, became capitalist, but in a different way. Yes. Yeah. And you know what else I love and thinking about these women that he is paired with, there's something too, because he is so highly verbal and articulate and his energy. When you think of Cusack, the first word that pops into my mind is energy because, you know, like even just jumping onto a chair on a phone scene, or this is me breathing or looking into a mirror, like there's just an energy to Cusack that I think other actors try to imitate or uh, capture, but he just kind of has it in spades. And there's something about that where you need a certain type of actress who's very different, has different beats to play well opposite it. Because I think like someone who is fabulous, his sister, I love them together. We had an actress more like that playing um, a love interest, for example, it wouldn't work. And so you need someone like a Diane Court who is smart, but she's a little uh, quieter, a little more thoughtful. And then um, you have these women who are larger than life and manipulative and the grifters. And then in this movie, you have Minnie Driver. And this was made, I believe, right before Good Will Hunting. It was after Circle of Friends. So she auditioned. She wasn't like just offered this role. And there's something about her rhythm. She is playing a DJ of a radio station and his old girlfriend. And so she is quite verbal herself, but in a different way. There are different rhythms to her speech than Cusack would have. And then we see it again later in High Fidelity with a Danish actress, a different um, scene partner than you would expect. And I think you need that because there were a lot of like, I don't know if Parker Posey, for example, who I love, if you put them together, they might've been a little too similar, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Mini, mini driver is great in this. I really believe them. It's a, it's a a thing to sell in the movie that he drops into her radio station after (laughs) 
characters and 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 their chemistry has to kind of pick up where yes. it left off and and you can picture them you you also get a, you get a, a perfect sense of what he was like in high school because also we have his whole filmography to think of him yeah uh, oh that's perfect yeah and then uh, and and she's so good uh, in her role that you can also picture her and what the dynamic was so it's yeah it's just really interesting to me that he's able to play this cool anti-authority outsider once again but this time he just happens to be uh, a hitman and i can't uh, um, it almost feels like this movie this movie just shouldn't work totally but yes. it really does um and and obviously he's a he's a he's a big part of that and his persona being brought to the him being able to bring his persona as the the teen Cusack into this role is a, a huge part of it um and also it's kind of like the part in his career where he's starting to play these pretty dubious characters uh that yeah into some 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 darker and darker characters like when he plays Nixon or when he plays this tech billionaire in, in Utopia and it seems like Cusack uh who is very uh politically uh outspoken and and uh, left-leaning uh is is getting interested in playing the uh portraying the types of men that he uh, rails against and I've heard him talking about yes know, absolutely Types of the types of uh, capitalists that he is very disgusted by, he he you know uh, realizes that they think of themselves as, as good guys and and go home and tuck their kids in at night too, and and he wanted to to really uh, uh, dig into what makes those guys tick. So a little more at a comic effect in gross gross point blank, but then to dramatic effect in some uh, some some later films. Yeah, the moral flexibility, I think, is is the line in the movie. But uh, listening to you uh, comment on we have his whole high school backstory uh, from these films, you do kind of get a sense that this is a movie that could only come after Say Anything and The Grifters because it's like half noir and half romantic comedy. And so oh. kind of plugged in. And it's also a film that is very much of its 90s era. For sure, we were making these sort of uh, quirky crime movies um, in the post-Tarantino, uh, Rodriguez wave of Sundance in 92. We were starting to greenlight all these movies and, you know, Hollywood, if they think something is working, they're going to make a bunch. Just like also, I think because of the age of the people making these films and writing these scripts, this was also the period of a lot of movies all of a sudden about high school reunions. You had Romy and Michelle. Also, this was around the time of Beautiful Girls. Um, so there were a bunch of these films that were being made, but this one is the one that kind of blended the other side of it, of the 90s, the crime movie, but did so in a seamless way. I think also this is a film where you see his generosity as a performer and his desire to let these people kind of come into a film or a scene and just upstage him and take over. Uh, he's talked about working with Alan Arkin and Arkin showing up on the set and immediately before doing one of their scenes goes, let's rewrite it. And all the producers started to freak out like, oh my God. And Cusack had to pull somebody aside and go, it's Alan Arkin. It's going to be better. And it was better, of course. And then he said um, something people don't 
realize when they're talking about Dan Aykroyd and his improbability is also just how smart he is. So some of these weird pulls like um, astral projection or book of revelations, like all of that weird shit that just comes out of Dan Aykroyd's head. And so I love that you're getting um, it also just feels very much like it belongs in this world but they're all bringing their individual thing. You have uh, Joan Cusack setting fire to an office and um, you have Piven kind of wandering back and trying to be a buddy and realizing, I think it's kind of funny throughout the movie, people keep asking him what he does for a living and he doesn't want to lie to people. And he says, you know, professional killer throughout. Nobody just uh, thinks he's telling the truth. There's all these jokey replies. And then later, uh, finally, Piven realizes, holy shit, my buddy was telling the truth, which is fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love Alan Arkin in this. And and you can totally see how, why and how he's a, a, a Cusack's a big fan. In many ways, Cusack almost feels like a, a throwback to a, to a 70s. Leading. Like an in-laws. Yeah. How idiosyncratic he is. Um, yeah. Dan Aykroyd is as good i mean as i've ever seen him he's oh my gosh he doesn't blink in some of those scenes it's it's bananas yeah it feel like it, it feels like Cusack raises his game you i mean you can imagine another movie just the, the two of them spy versus spy i i, I love Aykroyd. i know yeah you kind of want that movie like the scene in the diner it's rhythmic uh just rapid fire dialogue nobody is blinking i described it as a gunfight with words and uh i want that spy movie duncan you better write that all right let's well a uh, part of this podcast is i i want to see john cusack in some movies that yes uh, are movies that i want to see again um so if he's listening um yeah we pick up you. the phone john yes uh, all right. Well, that's Project One. It'll be him and Dan Aykroyd reuniting for the unofficial Gross Point Blank offshoot spinoff. Yes. And when I brought up this film in the past on Twitter, I think it was either right before the pandemic or early in the pandemic. Mini Driver actually found I didn't like I don't tag celebrities. I don't want to bother people on uh, social media, but she happened to find it or maybe somebody sent it to her and she just replied and told me it was like the best professional experience. One of the best she'd had in her entire life, like her favorite. She said they all got along so well that by the end of the movie, they decided to go camping together just because they didn't want to to have this experience end and all, you know, go their separate ways. Kind of uh, when these productions happen, you get people flying in from all parts of the world. They form these fast, really intense uh, relationships to put on like a circus or something. And then everyone um, drifts apart. And she said, but we all still keep in touch. And she said it was just such a strong and important uh, part of her and everyone involves uh, professional life. Yeah, which was cool. Oh, I love to hear that. Very cool. Yeah, it's good to know that they enjoyed it as much as we do. So that isn't always the case in Hollywood. Yes. Right. It feels like a fun movie. Uh, yes. The fun of this film is is contagious. I wonder, and maybe you can shed light on this, uh, since we're talking about Cusack, the the persona, the man, the, the characters. Um, one of the many contradictions is uh, he's someone who has dated. He's a he's a lifelong bachelor who's dated a lot of actresses, but he's not really someone you think of as like tabloid fodder, and he stays no. out, out of the limelight. So I don't know if he's dated Minnie Driver, um, or if you know that. I, I I don't know. She did not share that, but yeah, 
according to my list of, of I mean, not to get too tabloidy on that. <laughs> Duncan was on Just Jared last night. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's like they, they have dated, but uh, yeah, her, Allison Eastwood, Nev Campbell, uh, Huma Abedin, Meg Ryan. This is all according Oh, I to- remember the Meg Ryan era. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Seems like Nev Campbell was the was the big one, according to mine. Yeah, I think they were together for a while. And again, I'm not somebody who really pays attention to gossip, but growing up in the 80s and 90s, like you couldn't turn on the TV without, you know, e-channel or current affair or go to the store and see these magazine covers. And yeah, I mean, I think people were curious, but they kind of left him alone, which was cool. He wasn't somebody like... Um, you know, I can't imagine it would have been fun being Aniston and Brad Pitt. Yes, because they were all over every magazine. Yeah. Yeah. Somehow he, he did a lot of dating, but kept out of the out of the spotlight, which is just uh, adds to the Cusack mystique. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Hopefully he still has, you know, good friendships with these people. We don't know. It's his personal private life. Um, but Yeah. Absolutely. Well, as long as we're talking about gross point blank, do you want to go to high fidelity or do you want to? Especially since we're talking about dating and uh, girlfriends. It makes sense because this is another one based on Nick Hornby's novel, of course. And this had already, um, yeah, this had been a big hit. I think it was greenlit over here for a while. Nothing happened with it. And uh, Cusack was asked, I want to say it might have been by his producer friend, um, uh, Roth. Was it Roth? Yes. Um, to take a look at. And he said, I love the book. And that would be an appeal. And he said, one of the big differences is in the book, it takes place in England, is they're in love with American music, like, you know, Wilson Pickett. And he said, in, where he grew up in Chicago, going into record shops and stuff, we were more driven by, you know, the Clash and the punk uh, era, all these things that we think of with Cusack. And so he said, we just sort of got rid of the British accents and flipped that, but it is the book. But at the same time, I've read the book too, and there is enough about it that feels distinctly uh, Cusack in this adaptation. I love this film. It is one that I think your relationship to changes greatly with age, and we can get into that, but talk to me about High Fidelity. Uh, well, I was a huge fan of the of the book as well. Love the mm-hmm. book. Enough people recommended it to me that I was almost, I was like resisting reading it. <laughs> I don't know what it was about me that it kept getting recommended. But yeah, when he was, uh, when it was announced that John Cusack was playing the main role, it almost seemed like it, just such a no-brainer. He seemed so mm-hmm. big for it, as long as it, it was going to be uh, set in the U.S. and it wasn't a Brit. Uh, but for me, Chicago felt really um uh, evocative and and uh I was uh, as a as a fan of the book I was you know had that itch scratched by the movie where the movie feels like it's its own thing but also true to the book in all the best ways yes uh, on the Cusacky scale this one is certainly like off the charts you know maybe maybe almost up there like right after uh right after say anything and it it really does feel like in many ways this is the Cusack persona the Lloyd Dobler persona uh, grown up, uh, and in many ways, it's also kind of the the you know the quintessential Gen X or uh, uh, grown grown up movie. Um, and once again, he's playing this kind of underachieving uh, middleweight, 
And a lot of the Cusack uh, favorite actors in his orbit are there, Tim Robbins and, and Lily Taylor and his sister Joan. Um, and he is uh, still a romantic who, uh, maybe I'll, I'll put romantic in quotes, he still claims to be a romantic who uh, has had all these relationships and is is really looking for something pure and the one, and he doesn't want to uh, 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 compromise. And you can, you can almost see his character, Rob, doing the I don't want to sell anything, buy anything, or process anything speech in, in this movie. Uh, it, there's a scene where he goes to his ex, Catherine Zeta-Jones' house for uh, an upscale dinner party. And oh, yeah. He, outsider as like the one guy who probably doesn't have insurance uh, at his job or a form yeah. kind of out of it. And you're, or at least I was reminded of the, the say anything uh, uh, party, little, little dinner that she invites him to when they start dating. And there's the dad and his accountant and another couple and everyone's kind of established and they're looking at him like, what do you do? So, mm-hmm. so a lot of, a lot of DNA, with uh, Lloyd Dobler and with the Cusack persona. And that's part of the reason why I feel like the movie works so well. That said, there's uh, there's a, uh, we have the dark toxic side of that persona as he talks right to camera and tells us a certain point about the, Oh, you know, the affair, the borrowed money, uh, the, the, the abortion. The, yeah. Uh, so, so I, I love that they didn't try and soft pedal the, the, the the darker sides of the of the book um and then yeah gives he walks us through how all that happened but but they yeah they don't shy away from from how dark uh this this character can get and i'm imagining that's what you're kind of thinking in terms of uh re-watching the movie years later uh for me when i w- just watched it recently there's the scene where he meets up with his ex to ask where things went wrong and she talks about just how much he hurt her oh yes mm-hmm. and it's a it's a very uh dramatic scene you're kind of surprised that it goes there and then she gets up and he smiles and he couldn't be happier that he's kind of yep. been of all guilt because uh, uh of, of something he picked out of the conversation that that she yeah he cherry-picked something yep. like, oh, wow. yeah 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 yeah, I know. When you watch it when you're younger, you think, okay, he's damaged, but he's uh, interesting and he's cool and he works at a record store and all these things. And then you get older, like watching it in your 40s, and you start realizing, no, he's a narcissist with like a victim complex. He keeps going into all of these relationships and it's it isn't anything that he did wrong. It's their fault or this happened to him these situations and by the end of the movie like there is a great moment where his uh friend played by his sister Joan Cusack has to ask him because his uh longtime live-in girlfriend has broken up with him like why do you want Laura back and you can't really think of a reason why and that is also just a distinctly like Cusack says it's male insanity syndrome and male insecurity like well she was mine and nobody else should have her like he wants to fight Tim Robbins character and there's like this fantasy of him you know beating the shit out of that guy and then but does he want her back because he loves her like he needs to address these things and then feeling so good that she 
said she hadn't slept with this guy after they've already broken up, that he goes and immediately sleeps with uh, Lisa Bonet's character. And so there's a lot going on. Like they do not sugarcoat any aspect of this guy. And it kind of, you know, in some ways, it's also very good, I think, for people to watch because you watch Say Anything when you're young and you think, well, that's just what love is. You know, you get the guy who's going to get on the plane and go to London with you and everything. But uh, but when you watch that movie as an adult, you think, you know, Cameron Crowe is kind of leaving it like uh, they're waiting for that ding on the plane and then everything will be OK. But there's still some question there, which I love about the ending of that movie. And so I think when you're a teen, you don't think about that piece of it. Um, and then you watch it. So all of these movies kind of have that. But boy, high fidelity really goes some places. And so after you've had some relationships or dated some of these people, watching it again, all of a sudden is like, holy shit. It's it's yeah, it's uncomfortable. It's very Gen X. I can't imagine many of us watching this movie and not relating to various people and aspects in, of it. Yeah. The soundtrack again, we're talking about Cusack. There's rain, lots of rain in this one. Uh, yes, to all that. And uh, in in retrospect, when I did my Say Anything rewatch, the one moment that stuck out to me that I was like, oh, I don't remember this at all, was Cusack walking her around the broken glass. And the yes. Second. And later, in such a small moment, and later she says that to John Mahoney as a reason why he's such a lovely guy. Yeah. And a little clunky. It, it was the, the one moment where I was like, wow, uh, the the Ioni Sky's standards were really low in the 80s. It's such a smart movie. Uh, maybe I've misinterpreted it. And, and it's it's her love for him is um, beyond her capacity to kind of articulate. And she so she. Oh, picks- really? I found it romantic, too. I actually think it's he wanted to take care of her. Um, which is going to appeal to her because she's the one who stood up in court and chose her father, who she thought uh, took care of her. And also there's a thing where sometimes you get involved and some men give presents and then some men like to do gestures. And so these little gestures that he does throughout, like writing a little card uh, after they make love, and it's just very short, but it's beautifully done, or or the little glass, like, those are, to me, like, big gestures of, you can't imagine a lot of high school boys doing that, I guess, and so, yeah. I mean, I find Lloyd Dobber very romantic. <laughs> Something about the glass where I was like, well, geez, what was he going to do, let her walk into, into broken glass? I don't even know if guys would have paid attention to the ground, though, which I love. And and I'm sure I'm I'm sure there is a version where uh, <laughs> I might be too cool to say anything. Ah, uh, yes, yeah. Or you wonder, did that come out of um, improv, or like what what was that? Yeah. Yes. So that that was one moment uh, I clocked from from say anything that I didn't remember. Uh, so- <laughs> High fidelity. Uh, I, I guess I did because I'm such a fan of the book. I did remember he, you know, he has a an air of toxicity about him. So it wasn't. Yeah. The movie still all really. And, and they acknowledge that. I, I don't think there's any thing in the film that is feels too dated. I mean, for me, they no. really. Mm-hmm. I think one one reason it works and his immaturity, uh, one reason it works so well, at least for me, was his his partner in the film is feels very flawed and adult as as well. Mm-hmm. You 
going yeah, out. She's figuring stuff out too. Yeah. So it, it felt like they were, you know, if two people can be toxic together, that's a, that's a, <laughs> um, get behind, but yeah, couldn't, couldn't love high fidelity more. I, I was curious if Cusack had watched the TV series. I looked it up. He had, he had not, although he said it was on his, his radar and he wished, um, since he knows Lisa Bonet and Lenny Kravitz. Yeah. Zoe Kravitz well with it. Yeah, exactly. I haven't seen the TV show myself. Have you? Uh, I have. My my friend worked on it. It was uh that yeah, it's a good show. It's a good show. I was very surprised when it um when it uh only lasted a season. Yeah. I know they're canceling stuff too early now. Yes. And um, like we were just talking about these movies where he was getting them made and doing things creatively. And that brings us, uh, which was made before high fidelity, right before being John Malkovich, which he was going and asking people for their, just their weirdest screenplays. Like what is the thing you can't get made? And they would give him a list of things. No, no, no. Like he said, everybody has a black box or, you know, something like what is in there? What is the one script that, and somebody said the title, like you mean being John Malkovich. And he's like, what is that? And he read it. He loved it. And he told the financiers like, he would stick with it. If this gets made, I want to be considered. I want to, you know, be in the door for it. And this is one that I remember reading that Kaufman had sent to Francis Ford Coppola. And I love that he actually is the one who handed it off to uh, her, his daughter's boyfriend. I think this was in 95 when he was just a music video director, Spike Jones, like, no, uh, this might be something he did. And he, yeah, fell in love with it. So this is one I didn't love my first viewing. I think it was too strange and there was just something really abrasive and it kind of raised some issues with me and I, I didn't really like it, but then I couldn't get it out of my head and I had to watch it again. And that is the viewing for me that it really clicked. So what is your relationship like with being John Malkovich? Uh, a very, very tight relationship. We're very close. <laughs> yes. In the theater in Boston right before I moved to LA. And this was uh as was written about, I think, last year in that book, uh, best year ever. A, a great year for movies. Um oh yeah. Was it Brian Rafferty? Yes, yeah. This selection, uh Rush mm -hmm. Magnolia. Yeah, really got me pumped about uh movies again. So I I was all on board for being John Malkovich. I just couldn't have loved it more. I was in a, a very responsive <laughs> I was like, who, you know, who is Charlie Kaufman and, and who is Spike Jones and where did mm -hmm. this go? I thought it was so interesting uh, and inventive. Um, and in the surreal being John Malkovich world, I think you can still kind of track the progression of the the, the, the Cusack archetype. He's older, he's darkened, darker, he's more broken. So the, the artist's career that was probably seemed cool in his 20s is now kind of dead end. And yeah. And the patter surrounding it feels so pretentious and 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 so cringy and weak. And the the Cusack character is still a chatty uh, romantic except it's his coworker not his uh living lover that he's romantic over or maybe maybe toxically obsessed is a better uh a better term. So he's he's still kind of employing his charms um that we know from previous movies uh, and from his persona but but uh but they're not they're no longer a really 
working and he's he's wearing that that he looks kind of like this he looks like so many guys in the 90s um just this kind of broken temp artist with this david foster wallace hair i love his whole yes yeah yeah his whole energy like i've met so many guys like that yeah and um i think kaufman said that was what originally uh was the impetus was this idea of a man who falls in love with somebody who's not his wife and uh it is you know uh his coworker. there's even just the idea of when you're in love or early in a crush you sort of are like walking on air you think you can do anything or the best of yourself or this buzz you get and then his wife meets the same person and develops uh again we have a love triangle um a similar falls in love with the same individual uh Catherine Keener I think it's so good too. All of these performances are wonderful and they're very brave. I mean, Catherine Keener is great. She's dynamic. Uh, she's a ball breaker. Um, as, as soon as we see her, you know this chick and you'd be a little bit scared to just go up and say hi to her. But you have um, uh, Cameron Diaz playing against type. Uh, she is de-glammed, but you see her up close and she still has those expressive eyes and, you know, she's still lovely. And um, she's playing against that and trying to really show her range as an actor. And she is phenomenal. But the bravest, and I don't think I fully appreciated this when I was, you know, younger watching this, the bravest performance is full on John Malkovich. Because uh, I guess this movie had like somebody at New Line was going to make it and was like, wait, why isn't this called being Tom Cruise? And then it was like, why are we going with Malkovich? And Malkovich said he was hesitant. He said you were kind of fucked either way because if this was a bomb, it's got your name in the title. And then if it's a hit, everyone is going to keep coming up to you, associating you with just this one movie. And so if you think about that and you think of the humility and like what his guy is doing in this movie um you just think it is so brave and it's also hilarious like he is willing to go these places and he said that uh again you have a collaborative experience with um Cusack and Spike Jones in the script his buddy was going to be Kevin Bacon but Kevin Bacon is a normal dude you know and so he said uh, you know if he would have confided in Kevin Bacon about this strange attraction to this Catherine Keener character and just what was going on it would be just normal like a guy talking to his friend and he said but this guy is so fucked up he turns to Charlie Sheen and suddenly it's like the funniest thing ever. Like we should call Sheen. And so you have these people playing against uh, type, whether they're playing their names or there's somebody like Cameron Diaz playing against the woman in the mask, the beauty. And uh, there's something about Mary. And I think, yeah, it's a really brave film. Yes. It, it's hard to imagine it being anyone but John Malkovich. I know. <laughs> uh, I mean, talk about personas, the unknowableness of 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 him at that stage in his career where he played so many characters and he's on everybody's radar but he's not a big enough he's not a huge yeah. like we respect him but he's weird and we don't know much about him like you said about cusack like this isn't someone you saw in tabloids i mean you know i think some people listening might be surprised but you know he had some big relationships too early on but he isn't someone that we think of from this era as being tabloid fodder yeah 
the Charlie Sheen reveal, I can still remember <laughs> in the theater and how great I thought that was. So yes, Kevin Bacon just would not have. <laughs> no, Kevin seems like a normal guy. Um, but yeah, I lo- love this movie on, on so many levels. Uh, I, it, it holds up so well. I really feel like Cusack is like, for me, uh, the, uh, kind of the, 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 uh, most successful of the, of the tortured, ineffective Charlie Kaufman males. Um, oh, that's a good point, Duncan. Yeah. He, he might, he, you know, he, and, and, and I, I love that. I, I love those characters, but I feel like he's really great at that. And he and Malkovich have, have worked together before they're in. Uh, the Woody Allen movie Shadows and and Fog. I think they they both have small roles, and I I'd also say just speaking of Woody Allen that I think Cusack is the best Woody Allen stand-in persona in both. Oh, Bullets Over Broadway. He's excellent in that. Yeah, great. And um, one thing I love about Malkovich's performance is Malkovich doing Cusack, and you realize oh how many how many how many little ticks. He has in his uh, his whiny voice. I did uh, mm-hmm. a woman once who didn't like this movie, and one of the reasons was she loves John Malkovich, and she was like, she was like, I thought John Malkovich was very attractive, very sexy. She was like, what they did to John Malkovich in that movie, <laughs> dancing around the room with his shirt off, having to uh, embody Weasley. Uh, you know, nasal voice John Cusack was was just so upsetting to her that. Uh, oh wow, that's funny. She was like the one person in our age group that was like, you know what, not Cusack, Melkovich, baby, that's my John. Yeah. <laughs> to Cusack uh, on Mark Marin's podcast, and he does the he talks about Melkovich calling him up to say like, oh, I heard you like the movie. I mean, is this is this weird for me to do? And and, and Cusack does the Melkovich voice pretty well. Oh wow. Uh, yeah, these guys must have a blast together, just impersonating each other. <laughs> yeah, I would love to hear um, Malkovich's Cusack because I'm sure he could do it. Yes, yeah. So, so yeah. I, I, again, I just think this this is uh, this almost feels like uh, you know as 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 dark as Lloyd Dobler can get in the scene where where oh Craig, my god, con- uh, his uh, Cameron Diaz up in the cage. Uh, that is so horrifying. Yes. Well, he will do anything to kind of win over the Catherine Keener character. And mm-hmm. he's, he's using almost that, that same kind of location, loquacious, chatty love trumps, all uh, love and art trumps, all romantic. Yeah. yeah like uh, instead of a boom box over his head, he's like, you know what? I'm taking that energy and doing dark things with it. Yes. But it's another time. It's not the 80s anymore because Catherine Keener is not buying it. Not no, nope. no, not at all. Yeah, it's like no, nope. no mixtapes, no uh, boom boxes. She is choosing uh, Cameron Diaz. Yes, which is um, yeah. I love the directions this movie goes in. Also, just some of the other uh, supporting performances. Mary Kay Place is so great. Oh my god. So great. And uh, yeah, it does it just like in a little bit like the grifters. There is you kind of see Cusack's character. Craig is outsmarted by these by these two. Women. Yeah. As great as he is, it almost feels like when we talk about being John Malkovich, he's usually kind of like almost like the last person mentioned. Um, yes, a little bit. The Coffin movie, it's a Spike Jones movie. Oh, it's the movie where Cameron Diaz, like, you know, totally flipped her persona. Oh, it's the movie where Catherine Keener, you know, uh, finally, launched, you know, yeah, award nomination. So, yeah. 
Ms. Cusack is. I feel like he might be a little overshadowed in this. Yeah. When I announced that this one was coming, I got a bunch of replies from fans saying they think he's one of the most underrated or under-discussed actors because uh, I think he does bring sort of a natural quality to these roles or like you said that we just assume that is what he's like or he's playing himself Um, yeah and you forget sometimes what he is capable of and what uh, revolutionary roles and films and where he goes in his career I mean not always then Right after this, he started making movies. He was immediately trashing like serendipity on the press circuit for that. He's like, this is junk. And, um, you know, some of these movies, I think, was it War Incorporated? He was prouder of that didn't do very well. I don't really remember that one. Joan calls it kind of an unorthodox sequel to Gross Point Blank, which made me want to watch it again. But I haven't seen it since. Are there any performances or movies you brought up, Bullets Over Broadway, uh, that you want to give a shout out to that you think people should really check out? I love Love and Mercy. I think that might be his last just phenomenal performance. That one to me was like, you know, you can't watch that movie and not think, you know, Cusack does deserve the praise that some of his contemporaries received far more, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, like you said, um, it's 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 kind of uh, off of off of high fidelity. Post post high fidelity, having kicked in the door of the adult romantic comedies, he kind of moves into the more studio romantic. Yeah. Where I was just, oh, I I would see posters for Must Love Dogs, and I'd be like, oh, oh god, yeah. yeah. But now I'm so starved for good Cusack. I might check out one of those movies. I always kind of wonder. Yeah. Yeah. I know you have Diane Lane in the same movie. And I remember at the theater, people just like kind of the audible groans. There's a scene where they they want to have sex, but they need to go like chase down a condom and it, it gets more and more ridiculous. And you're, they're grown ups and it's weird. And uh, but now like we don't make romances or like you said, we don't see Cusack that much that damn it, we might queue up uh, must love dogs after this. Yeah. Yeah, he really has. Um, he he really has kind of uh, gone in the direction of doing a lot of these straight to streaming movies. I agree with you. I love him in Love and Mercy. I think that's a really yeah. tough because you've got Paul Dano who's fantastic for half. Oh, phenomenal! Yeah, biopics where you where you switch actors, and uh, uh, Cusack is awesome and 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 totally nails it. Um, I, you know, I had a sweet spot for Hop Tub Time Machine, which if we were doing, <laughs> you know, if we were doing uh, six films, that one certainly, that almost ends the trajectory of of, of Cusacky movies, where once again, he's playing a character who, uh, who is Seems older. Seems very, yeah. Um, he didn't do the, the sequel. I'm, I'm not sure. I, I think that maybe they couldn't afford him. Uh, and I think oh, he's. Oh, interesting. A cut even though it's Steve Pink is his friend and collaborator, I think he's in a cut scene uh, that's on the DVD. Um, okay. Then too confusing for uh, audiences. So they cut that. So um, yeah, I, I'm not sure. There are some other Cusack movies I, I want to check out, but I think love and mercy is kind of the, the best one of, of the last few years. I liked, I, I didn't love map to the stars, but I liked him in, in map to the stars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. 
was was solid. Uh, that was a kind of interesting character. I'm still always really excited when he pops up in things. Um, I would love to, yeah, to see him pop up in more. I don't know, Kevin Bacon style, or 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 even uh, do another TV show. Um, yeah, I'm a big fan. Yeah, I mean, aside from of course the spy movie that you're going to write with, uh, yeah, Dan Aykroyd, which yeah, we're pitching that right now. We've we've made some meetings. I've been multitasking while I've been talking to you, Duncan. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, yeah, I think you should do that for sure. He's he's out there keeping busy. He's tweeting. <laughs> he is. Yes, he's extremely politically active. Um, you know. Back. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and it seems like he has a couple interesting projects in mm-hmm. long, long, long term uh, development that I I hope happen. And who knows? I might I might just pop in one of these uh, these uh, streaming movies where he's on the cover with a gun, with like uh, you know Stephen Dorff, and and see how. <laughs> uh, I'm just not hip to them yet. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to thank you so much for doing this. It's always such a pleasure. So when you come up with another idea, you'll have to come on back. Uh, all right. Well, this was quintessential Cusack. So maybe maybe if I like any of those movies, we'll do kind of uh, underrated Cusack. Or maybe there you we'll just... go. <laughs> uh, thanks for having me. This is super fun. I listen to the show. I love the show. You always oh. have uh, fun, fun, fun people. I'm not including I'm not saying I'm fun. I'm saying you have. Yes, other... you are. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, thanks for having me. Of course. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.